Well, hey, good morning. How y'all doing? Good morning. All right. Um, man, I love these Sundays. Um, Alan's actually preaching at our church, so I get the chance to be here with you this morning. So it's a huge encouragement to me uh, to be here. Our church also loves these Sundays because Alan is at our church praying, uh, preaching, and that's a huge blessing to them. And your church is nice enough to endure these Sundays. So thank you for kind of going along for the ride. But even if you don't enjoy this morning, uh, we just learned you can't complain about it, right? No grumbling, no complaining. Alan will be back uh, next week, right? And, and what I just did is usually what people do when you hear Philippians 2, 14 quoted, right? Um, that idea of don't grumble, don't complain um, is often just kind of tossed out there as almost this staccato, moralistic, hey, stop whining kind of thing, right? My wife, Laura, and I have three small kids. We've got a two-year-old, a four-year-old, and a six-year-old. So we bust this verse out not infrequently around our house, particularly at mealtime, right? With conversations sort of the like, no, you need to try it. Daniel Tiger says you should try it because you might like it. Um, you, you do like it for crying out loud. Please try it. This is not like the time mommy tried to make pizza with a quinoa base. This, you actually like this. Just eat it. You know, when we want to go Bible, we're like, stop grumbling and complaining, right? Um, Laura and I use this as a quick check for each other. Any time either of us in our marriage start to go negative and you kind of come home at the end of the day and just want to regale each other with stories like you're trying to have this competition of who's had the worst day and I'm like, oh babe, traffic and this meeting and the whole staff got possessed by the devil last night and I don't know what happened. It's just terrible and she's like, oh, well Aiden peed on the couch and I'm like, I talked to my mother and you know, you're just sort of like, who's had the worst day? Like we want to win this competition. We'll just be like, hey, Philippians 2.14, don't don't, don't go there, right? Don't, don't, don't be that person. Stop grumbling. Stop complaining, right? And if you're waiting for me to pull one of those pastoral, like, hey, but that's not really what the text means. No, that's exactly what the text means, right? There's no, you know, get out of jail free card if you look at the Greek. Um, in, in fact, um, I love the way Eugene Peterson in his paraphrase of Scripture, the message, um, makes the author's intent of this so clear, he, he translates the passage this way. He says, do everything readily and cheerfully. No bickering, no second guessing allowed. Go out into the world uncorrupted, a breath of fresh air in this squalid and polluted society. Provide people with a glimpse of good living and of the living God. Carry the light giving message into the night so I'll have good cause to be proud of you on the day that Christ returns. You'll be living proof that I didn't go to all this work for nothing. It's a beautiful picture of what Jesus is calling us to this morning. A beautiful picture of what God wants our lives to look like day in and day out. But there's a danger in just grabbing Philippians 2.14 out of context, right? Um, the, the danger is that, that we would almost be, be treating Scripture like it's nothing more than just a compilation of different tweets. I mean, maybe that's the book of Proverbs. We can talk about that later. But, you know, sometimes we have a, a tendency to talk about Scripture like it's just a collection of, you know, little tweets that they might contain interesting content in the moment, but they're devoid of any deeper meaning, any nuance, or any context. And we don't want to make that mistake when we come to Scripture. We want to say, hey, what else is going on around this passage? 
And in fact, when we look at what else is happening around this passage, it really raises some interesting questions for us. Philippians 2 um, is one of the most significant um, chapters in all of Scripture, right? All Scripture is valuable. All Scripture is breathed by God. But there are sections that compile the gospel message with such clarity and such precision and such power that they become sort of, hey, if you only have time to work through a couple of chapters of the Bible and the course of a year, Philippians 2 is a really good place to start, right? Because in the beginning of Philippians 2, Paul starts with this idea that we as followers of Christ are to consider other people as more important than ourselves, right? In some ways, it's maybe the foundational understanding of what Christian ethics looks like. If you want to know what to do in any and every situation, just consider other people more important than yourself. And from there, he pivots to Philippians 2, 6 through 11, which is a hymn, It's actually song lyrics in the Bible. It's this hymn about Jesus, uh, which is so significant because in a pre-literate culture, they put the really important stuff into songs that you could transmit orally and and pass on to your kids. And the only debate about Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is not whether it's a song. It clearly is. The only question is whether Paul wrote it or somebody else wrote it. My guess, by the way, is that Paul is a number of things, but he's not a songwriter. So he is probably quoting what was already an established hymn in the church. So it contains this early Christian understanding of Jesus. And it contains this absolutely majestic picture of Jesus who chose to humble himself. Yet this one who became obedient to the point of death on a cross is also the one before whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess and all of life is to the glory of God. So, I mean, Paul is in some really big things here. And then then he goes from there into, hey, so you need to work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it's God who's at work in you. It's one of the foundational passages to understand spiritual formation and how do we grow in Christ. So he's just all these huge themes. And then... Verse 14, stop grumbling, stop complaining. And one hand, you can kind of see what he's doing. He's painting this big picture of Jesus and he's saying that picture of Jesus should shape the way we live our lives. And here's an example, don't grumble and complain. But he could have picked a hundred different examples there. He could have picked from any one of a number of topics and he goes to grumbling and complaining. And my question is, why Does he do that? Why does he pick that? Or maybe the other way we can ask the question is, why is grumbling and complaining such a big deal to Paul? By extension, if we can answer that question, we'll also be able to work our minds around why grumbling and complaining should be such a big deal to us. Right? Um, I, if I stand up here for 35-ish minutes and say, hey, you shouldn't grumble and, and complain, I, I've basically just given you some fortune cookie wisdom with a little Bible tacked onto it. Right? I don't think that's what you came for this morning, and I don't think it's what we need. Right? Most of us walked in here this morning saying, yeah, I get it, grumbling and complaining, less than ideal. But come on, John, don't take my whole morning up with this. I'll give you a list of other things in my life that I'm working through right now. Those are a big deal. And maybe someday I'll get to the point where it makes sense for me to pay attention to grumbling and complaining. And what we often do with a sermon like this is we're like, I know, and I should, and I'll try a little bit harder tomorrow, and I won't grumble as much in the, oh, shoot, but Monday morning, the morning staff meeting, I always grumble in the morning staff meeting. So I'll, I'll grumble tomorrow, but then I'll try again on Tuesday. And we just sort of dismiss this as like, you know, a little fortune cookie wisdom, you know, at least you got a Bible verse next time you want to lob it at your kids. 
And the next time your spouse is going negative, you can be like, I don't know, Philippians 2.14. But, but we need to see what's going on here in order for us to walk out and be serious about living this out this week. Because that, that's my goal. That's what I believe God wants for us as his people this morning, that we would walk out of here this week and be really serious about the way uh, we use our words. Right? And so I'm going to make a case of why this mattered to Paul and why it should matter to us. And to do that, I'm going to give you four uh, different reasons that it should matter. Um, a theological reason, if you want the roadmap in advance, I'm going to give you a theological uh, reason. Then I'm going to give you a relational reason, then a missiological uh, reason. All that means is that God is a God who's actively involved in the world. Um, he is working to rec- redeem people, to re- reconcile people into a relationship with himself, and ultimately to make all things new. We call that the mission of God, and he accomplishes that mission through us. And you're like, man, if you hadn't called it missiological, you wouldn't have to give us um, that explanation. And I'm like, I know, but then they wouldn't have all rhymed. So it'd be very sad. So theological, relational, missiological, and psychological, okay? So, so that's where we're headed for this morning. We got a lot of work to do, so let's let's get started with a theological answer. Right? If you want to understand theologically why this matters to Paul, we got to realize that this is not the only time Paul deals with grumbling and complaining. In fact, it's not even the primary time. The, the place that he really gets his mind around it is 1 Corinthians 10, verses 9 to 11. If you want to turn there in your copy of Scripture, or we're going to put the verses up on the screen so you can follow along. Um, and here, here's what he says. He says, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did. Them, by the way, is Old Testament Israel. He's talking about the period of time where Israel had been led out of slavery in Egypt through the Red Sea, but they're wandering around the desert for 40 years before they enter the promised land. Moses is leading them, and Paul's bringing us back to that moment. He's saying, as some of them, Israel did, and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble, as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now... These things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Right? What, what Paul is doing here is he's saying, hey, if you want to understand why this grumbling and complaining thing really matters, you need to go back and read the Old Testament and see the story of God's incredible mercy on Israel. Right? See the story of God's incredible power. This God who loves his people enough to liberate them from slavery and this God who is powerful enough to part the Red Sea so they can walk through it. This God who provides manna in the morning. This God who is leading his people with a pillar of flame and a cloud of smoke. This God who is so gracious. This God who is so kind. This God who has prepared a promised land. This God who is so good and so powerful yet Israel is grumbling. And what Israel is doing is putting God to the test. That's the key. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test. Paul sees grumbling as an illegitimate form of putting God to the test. Now, that putting God to the test language, you've got to be careful with that. Because there is a place in Scripture where God invites us to put him to the test. 
It's Malachi 3. He's talking about the tithe. He's saying, hey, why don't you you put me to the test in this? Bring in the full offering into the storehouse and see if I don't bless you in exchange for that. Right? Now, I'm one of those guys, when God puts in Scripture, hey, you should test me on this. I want to take him up on it. I want to see what he's going to do with that. Right? That's not what we're talking about here, nor did Alan pay me to include a little bonus on the tithe. Um, that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about legitimate forms of putting God to the test. We're talking about illegitimate forms of putting God to the test. Because what Israel was doing, and so often what you and I do, whether knowingly or unknowingly, and are grumbling and complaining, is we are questioning the goodness or the greatness of God. Right? We are, we are questioning whether God actually cares about us and we are questioning whether or not God is actually powerful enough to do anything about our lives. Can you see how that sort of undergirds so much of our grumbling and our complaining? It's this sense that God clearly can't do anything about this situation. So so what am I left to do? I'll just grumble and complain and wallow in the misery. Or that God doesn't love me enough to help. There's this sense in all of our souls. There's this sense that we all have to fight back against. God just doesn't know what he's doing in my life. If God knew what he was doing in my life, I I wouldn't be going through this situation. If God knew what he was doing, this would be happening faster. This would be happening differently. This wouldn't be happening at all. And, And what we do is rather than learning how to appropriately metabolize our grief and our disappointment with God, and rather than learning how to bring our questions and our frustrations to God and all of our searching and all of our anxiety and say, God, we got to work through some things because there are legitimate challenges in my life. And, and the gospel invitation is never an invitation to turn a blind eye to the pain of life and just stick your head in the proverbial sand and be like, I'll just pretend that's not happening. No, that, that's not healthy or biblical. Right? The, the healthy and biblical approach is this is happening. And it hurts so badly that I don't know how I'm going to make it through the week. But God, we need to talk about that and we need to work through that. And, and I need to learn or relearn the language of lament and, and what it means to bring all of that to you, God. But instead of doing that, instead of doing the hard work of processing all that with God, we just go have coffee with a friend and grumble. Uh, you wouldn't believe him. I know, 20 years of marriage, still hadn't changed, can't make the bed. And she can't make lasagna. Who can't make lasagna? And my boss, politician X. We just don't grumble versus talking to the God who could actually do something about it. But by, by the way, that is not um, sort of cheap dime store theology for Paul. You want to see how committed Paul is to that? Go to the end of the passage, Philippians 2, 17 to 18. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering, Paul is writing Philippians from jail, almost certainly from Rome at the end of his life. He knows that he's about to stand trial. He knows there's a good chance he's going to be taken out of the game. When he says poured out as a drink offering, he means killed by Rome. That's what he's getting at. Even if I am going to be killed by Rome upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. He's saying, if they take me out of the game, I'm not going to go down questioning the goodness and the greatness of God. They, they can 
crucify me. They can crucify me upside down. They can behead me. They can do what they need to do to me, but I'm going to go down in my last breath, say, no, I, I don't understand this. And I'm going to, wait, oh, wait, what did I write about this? For me to live is Christ, to die is gain, but I'm going to go down celebrating that God is good and that God is great. And I'm going to hold on to that even if they kill me. So he's saying to the church in Philippi, I get it. You're being persecuted. I get it. You have lived under persecution from the day the church was planted in Philippi. But don't you dare let that make you doubt the goodness and the greatness of God. So much of what we do here on Sunday mornings is come together to remind ourselves that God is good, that God is great. And and, and hold on to that and try to live that out in community week in and week out. And preach that to ourselves. Because we live in a world that wants to suggest anything but. And we live in a world that if we were to just look at our circumstances, we would say, where is your God? And why is he not doing more? And why is he so weak? And why is he so irrelevant? And we bring ourselves back over and over again to the truth of scripture and to the beauty of the cross and to the power of the empty tomb. And we say, our God is not weak and he is not irrelevant and he is not unable. He's good and he's great. And if we can get that in our hearts, grumbling and complaining will start to melt away. Right, which, which kind of sets us up for the relational answer. Right, there's more here than just our relationship with God. There's our relationship with each other, right? Which, which some of you have almost anticipated this point because you're like, look, man, stop trying to spiritualize this. Right? I don't grumble and complain because of my relationship with God. I grumble and complain because of my boss, right? I grumble and complain about the person three cubes down who insists on microwaving fish every Wednesday at noon, right? I grumble about that. I grumble about my neighbor who doesn't know how to mow the lawn. I grumble about the HOA that doesn't know how to plow snow. I grumble about the fact that my kids haven't gone to school yet for a full week in 2019 between two-hour delays. And it's just therapeutic for me to say it. Um, it wasn't grumbling. It was just preaching. Uh, I was just trying to connect on an emotional level, right? And we're like, yeah, leave Jesus out of this. Just people around me are ticking me off. All right. Well, Paul's actually very aware of that as well. Paul's entire thrust here in Philippians 2 is the community of faith. We live in a 21st century Western Americanized Christianity where when we read the Bible, we almost always read it as an individualistic text written to us until somebody stands up and points out that it might be communal. Most of the rest of the world reads things as inherently communal until somebody stands up and says, actually, that's supposed to apply to you individually. But what we do with Philippians 2, 12, and 13, it says you should work out your salvation with fear and trembling. We hear you and we think you singular and I'm supposed to go off in the corner and me and Jesus and work some things through in my life. But if you look at it in the original language, the you there in Philippians 2, 12, and 13 is plural. He's not saying, hey, you by yourself, go figure some stuff out with God. He's saying, hey, you... So our southern friends, all y'all, right? Um, All y'all, work this out together. Grace Hill, as a church, work this out together. There was a lot of grumbling in the Philippian church. He's going to address two ladies in particular in in Philippians 4. They get called out in the pages of Scripture. And 2,000 years later, we're like, ooh, Iodia and Syntyche, wonder what their deal was. Paul is calling the Philippian church to realize that one of the most effective ways of destroying community and destroying unity in the church is by grumbling and complaining. Rather than seeing problems on a Sunday morning and saying, hey, what can I do to help? We see problems and we sit back and say, why aren't they doing more to fix that? Right? Rather than coming alongside each other in love when we're struggling, we sit back and say, man, what's her deal? Why can't she get her act together? What's his deal? 
When was the last time you saw them at church? I don't know, man. They barely pay attention. They always come late. They barely pay attention. Snapchatted their whole way through the service, right? I mean, we're so good at critiquing each other. Paul says, man, that'll just kill your affection for one another. It'll also reveal our, our relational immaturity. Right, Ronald Rollheiser um, is one of my, my favorite Catholic authors right now. Um, he just writes so beautifully about the human condition and our relationship with Jesus. And he helps us see this issue of grumbling and complaining as it relates to community in a way that I think you'll find as convicting as, as I did when I first read this. Here, here's what he says. He says, until we reach a certain level of maturity, and he means spiritual maturity, we form community largely around scapegoating. That is, we overcome our differences and tensions by focusing on someone or something about whom or which we share a common distancing, indignation, ridicule, anger, or jealousy. This is the anthropological function of gossip. And a very important one it is. We overcome our differences and tensions by scapegoating someone or something. That is why it is easier to form community against something rather than around something. And why it is easier to define ourselves more by what we are against than by what we are for. Right? There, just nailed it. That's why it's easier to bond in your office around your collective outrage over your boss than what's actually happening in your team. Right? That's why it's easier at family gatherings to talk about the extended family member who's not there than to actually deal with the reality of life for those of us that are in the room. That's why when we don't know what to do at a cocktail party, we bond around our mutual outrage over politician X, you know, insert whoever here, right? Because that's easy. We can talk about, yeah, I don't like that. Yeah, I'm against that too. Yeah, we're pushed back against that. And all we're doing in that moment is revealing a lack of maturity that enables us to talk about what's actually happening with us. And Paul, right here in Philippians 2, is saying, no, y'all need to pay attention to what's happening in your church in the way that your gossip and your complaining is tearing you apart. Stop scapegoating everyone else and start dealing with what's happening in your church. Right? So, so every time, every time, it's sort of a refrain in my head, every time I find myself tempted to grumble, every time I find myself tempted to complain, I've just have, have felt the Holy Spirit just sort of asking me, okay, so what, what's that going to say about your maturity? What's that going to say about your spiritual maturity? Why? Because again, going back to where we started, theological reason, if I have a relationship with Christ, I can do all of my grumbling and complaining with him. Say, like, God, I don't understand. How long, O oh Lord? Right? Read the Psalms. There's so much complaint in there, but it's complaint directed towards God. Certainly not complaint directed towards tearing down unity in the church. Right? So for the sake of what God is doing here at Grace Hill, we've got to pay attention to this. Which brings us to the missiological answer. Right? This is kind of short but, but sweet. Remember, this is the, hey, God's doing something in the world and he invites us into it. And we call the things that God is doing his mission. So you and I are meant to be a part of the mission of God. And, and this is actually so much of what Paul is thinking about here in this passage. Look at verse 15. Why are we going to do all this? That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. It's one of the most beautiful descriptions of who God wants us to be. Think, think, think about it. God is saying that in a world that is profoundly dark, in a world that is at times 
unimaginably painful in, in, in a world that sometimes idealizes evil. In that world, you and I have a role. In that world, you and I have a function. And God says, you know what I want you to do? I, I want you to go out and I want you to shine like stars in the universe. Back to Eugene Peterson, show them good living and the living God. He's saying, go be that. Right? So often we downgrade what God is asking us to do in life. And don't ever let somebody sell you a small vision of what God is calling you to do. God is saying, no, I want you to be the ones that shine the very light of Christ into Herndon, Virginia. I want you to shine the light of Jesus in Fairfax County. I want you to be beacons of hope in Loudoun County. I want you to be an ambassador of Christ in your office. I want your extended family to know about the grace and the truth and the beauty and the love of Jesus because you showed up at Thanksgiving. Right? Don't just settle for don't get in a fight with Uncle Al this year. Right? That's good. Don't get in a fight with Uncle Al. But go as an ambassador of the living Christ. Shine like a star in the universe. It's beautiful. And Paul is saying, all right, how do you do that? Stop grumbling. Quit your whining. You want to stand out? Do that. Right, somewhere along the line, we got sold this lie that the most countercultural thing you can do as a follower of Jesus is show up at happy hour and order a Sprite. And if that's your thing, fine, great, go for it. Knock yourself out. Give each, you know, the most countercultural, oh, we give each other side hugs in the lobby. Okay, great, good. Uh, yay, I'm for that. Yay. Modesty and appropriateness. But that's not what God is in heaven. You know, something like, swing for the fences. Yes, that's the epitome of the Christian life. He's like, you really want to stand out? Do you really want to look different? Do you really want people to ask questions about your life? Just break up with gossip. Just break up with grumbling. Break up with complaining. And, I mean, it's, it's incredible to me. It's incredible to me that Paul wrote that 2,000 years ago. Because I'll, I'll talk to people all the time and say, is the Bible still relevant today? It was written in a different time, in a different culture. Uh, it's so different. So much has changed since the Bible was written. Does it still matter? And the thing that's astonishing to me over and over again is, yes, almost everything has changed since the Bible was written, except God and human nature. We still struggle with the same things that they were struggling with in Philippi 2,000 years ago. They didn't even have the internet and they were grumbling and complaining. And here we are, 2,000 years later, and the word of God is as fresh and as relevant and as powerful. And the invitation's out there. If you want to shine like a star in the universe, quit your grumbling, quit your complaining, quit your whining. It's so beautiful. And so there's a lot at stake. Our relationship with God is in the mix, and our relationship with each other is in the mix and how God would use us in the world is in the mix. But there's also a psychological answer to all of this. Right? You're also fighting in all of this for your joy. Right? I, I've been thinking about this. Um, I'm not going to ask a show of hands, right? It's maybe too vulnerable uh, for, for a Sunday morning. But um, I'm assuming that there are some of us in the room who have watched um, that Marie Kondo show, Tidying Up, on Netflix. Just some, okay, there's like enough head nods that I don't feel terrible, because I have. Um, you can judge me, but you can't complain. Um, right, um, 
I have watched it, and I've watched it for two reasons. One, um, I am just sort of type A and OCD enough um, that when she showed the folding method where the t-shirts could stand up in the drawer like that, I was like, <gasps> that is what I've been missing. Like, I'm like, that is the miss. I loved it. I love everything about it. Now, the other reason that I happen to be watching that is in January, right after the new year, I got the flu. Um, and so I was legit knocked out in bed for about three or four days um, and just went on a massive Netflix binge. I'd love to tell you that I just read the Old Testament in Hebrew. I watched Netflix. Um, and I watched Tidying Up with Marie Kondo. Um, as, yes, thank you. I'm feeling better about this. Um, I might be able to come back here at some point. Um, it's good. I watched it. By the way, just for, just, just for free, you're all smart enough to, to know this without me having to tell you, but I, I wasn't. Um, like I said, we have three small kids, so I'm in bed. My wife basically put me in quarantine because she was like, look, you, I, you, we're going to deal with you. You will not die. You'll be fine. But what's going to happen, the kids are not going to get the flu because if the kids get the flu, then I'm going to get the flu and the whole world's going to come to an end. So she basically sent me into my room and you watch Netflix and you'll be fine and we'll you know, pass you your meals under the door. Um, but I was so enthralled with tidying up that one of those times when Laura came in to bring me like a new water bottle I was like babe you gotta watch this with me that's not a good idea when your wife I was just enthralled with the folding I, I thought she would be as inspired as I was and 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 it's possible um, that that could be perceived as a suggestion about how she could do the laundry better while still holding the whole world together while you're watching Netflix so don't do that, um, right? She is sweetest, borderline pacifist. I swear that's the closest I've ever come to being beaten to death by an iPad. Um, I was like, uh-oh, <laughs> the flu isn't gonna kill me. She might. Um, so I would comment withdrawn. She has not watched the show at all since. I haven't watched it since. Um, but uh, by the, what are we talking about? Marie Kondo, yeah. Um, she's there. And why, why, why are we talking about Marie Kondo? Here, here's why we're talking about Marie Kondo. Because uh, she has this whole thing, even if you haven't seen the show, the plot's pretty simple. She just wants you to give everything away. Um, so you go and you get all your clothing. You throw it all on the bed. And then what you're supposed to do, and I will confess, I don't understand this. You're supposed to take each item and if it sparks joy, you keep it. You hold it and see if it sparks joy. I don't, I don't get that. I, I, I tried it on my kids. I was like, come here, Aiden. Yeah, ish. I mean, I, I don't know. Like, what exactly should I be feeling? I should have tried it with my daughter, right? I mean, I'm like, I don't know. What should I be feeling right now? Right? And if it sparks joy, you keep it. And if it doesn't spark joy, you get rid of it. And I don't care what you do with your wardrobe. I, 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 don't, I don't care if you give your clothes away or not. But she's actually on to something. Right? She's on to something that's actually not all that unlike what Paul is saying here. Where Paul is saying, hey, you know what you need to hold on to if you want to find joy in life? And if you want to stop grumbling and complaining? You know what you should hold on to? The word of life, Philippians 2.16, hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the things that bring you joy in life, right? He, he's going to say it even more explicitly in Philippians 4. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? Some, some of us wonder, how is it that this following Jesus is supposed to make me joyful? And we just think it's going to be some sort of mythical thing that, you know, Jesus is going to come into your life and just sprinkle joy dust all over you someday. And Paul's saying, actually, it's a little bit, I mean, he can do that and fill you with the fruit of the Spirit, his love, joy, I get that. But also, stop 
focusing on things that make you so negative. Think about things that are positive and good and bring life and, and things that, that are beautiful. Because sometimes the reason we're complaining and the reason we're grumbling is we are just feeding our souls a constant diet of outrage. We, we're just feeding our minds a constant diet of everything that is contrary to Philippians 4.8. We, we just feed ourselves a constant stream of whatever is false and dishonorable and unjust and impure and unlovely and of ill repute and not excellent. So you got to figure out what that looks like for you. A couple thoughts. You may have to give up cable news, right? And I don't care what your persuasion is, right? You're like Fox, okay, MSNBC, CNN, I don't care. Like whatever, whatever you watch, my guess is you've rarely gotten up from 30 minutes of cable news and been like, gosh, I feel so good about the world. No, you get up and you're like, I need to take a shower. That was awful. Like, right, it's just, you just, all you're doing is just picking your flavor of awful, right? I mean, it's just like, stop doing that. Just read the newspaper. Oh, that's a crazy thought. Just read the paper once every 24 hours, right? Find a news site that you trust. Just go once every 24 hours. You do not need to keep up with the hour by hour outrage of our world. If you're following anybody on social media just so you can be appalled by them, stop it. Right? If you're hate-following anybody on social media, it, it, it's completely worthless. You're like, yeah, just want to see what idiotic thing they say tomorrow. Really? How's that helping your, your soul? If it's a job requirement, well, I don't know, ask Alan. He'll figure that out for you. But how's that feeding your soul? Right? Why is it that we obsess about the things that are wrong? yes. God willing, he's the most insensitive jerk you're ever going to date for the rest of your life. Right? But you Marie Kondoed him back before Thanksgiving. He, oh, sorry, you don't spark joy. You're out of here. So why are we still talking about him over brunch? Why are we still doing another? I didn't even tell you about Halloween. I, did you know about Halloween? He was 20 minutes. I can't believe it. Right? We, we, we feed ourselves this constant diet of things that are negative. And wonder why we've crushed our joy. So, so, so listen, I, I came this morning to fight for your joy. I, I came this morning to fight for your witness in the broader world. I came to fight for unity and maturity in this church. I came to fight for your relationship with God. And we did it all through the lens of stop grumbling and stop complaining and quit your whining. So here's what I want you to do this week. I want you to try to carry Philippians 2.14 with you. But every time you're tempted to grumble and complain, I want you to ask yourself, so is this a theological thing that's happening? Is it a relational thing that's happening? Is it a missiological thing or is it a psychological? Right? What, what, am I, what, what do I need right now? What, what's giving rise? I'm, am I doubting God's goodness and God's greatness? Am I just taking the cheap road to community and I'll come in and trash the boss with everybody else so I have friends at the office? Right? Is that what's going on? Am I just forfeiting a chance to shine like a star in the universe? Right? Or, or am I just crushing my own joy by coming home and get 30 minutes with my wife in the kitchen to prepare dinner? And why in the world are we having this race to who had the worst day? Why don't we start the conversation of, hey, what's the most significant thing you saw Jesus do in your day today? Hey, what was the moment where you felt most alive today? 
Hey, hey, what was the place where you saw God's grace transforming our kids? We'll see. Someday. Um, right? I mean, what was that? Right? Just ask yourself that. That, that. That's my hope. That you, through the week, oh, I'm tempted to grumble. Is it theological? Is it relational? Is it missiological? Is it psychological? What's at stake in this moment? And, 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 and do the appropriate thing, which is probably going to involve staying quiet and probably going to involve refreshing your soul in Christ. Because at the end of the day, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You say, all right, I got to bring my soul back to Jesus. And he's good. He's great. He's loving. And I got to get something beautiful in front of my mind so I don't grumble and complain. And I think if you do that, you'll see the word of God bear tremendous fruit in your life this week. So I'm going I'm to pray that for all of us. And then Nick's going to come up. And he's going to lead us in one last song. But Father, we want to take a minute and come to you and confess that we struggle with this. Some of us probably have been confronted this morning with the reality, God, that this is a much bigger deal for us than we really were aware of on our way in. God, maybe for some of us, this is just a pattern of how we live life. This is just how we navigate. Maybe for some of us, there's just individual people, individual situations where this is a struggle, but God, I am asking you, because you are good, and because you are great, and because you've given us the gift of your spirit, I am asking you to meet each one of us right here, in this moment. And I'm asking you to show us what it is that you would have us take away from your word this morning. God, if there are specific situations in our lives that we need to repent of, specific conversations that we need to repent of, I'm asking that you would bring those to mind right now. That your spirit would do that difficult, beautiful work of saying, right here, that's what I want to talk to you about. But also pray, God, that you would remind us of the mercy of the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God, that we're forgiven, that in Christ we're holy, we're blameless, we're beyond reproach. And God, I pray that you would do a work in our heart that we would live differently this week. Father, show us what that would look like. We want to know. We're inviting you to press into our lives, God. Press into our relationships. Press into our conversations. Lord, we want to know you. We want to be used by you. God, I pray for my friends at Grace Hill Church that they would shine like stars in the universe hold forth the word of God. So Lord, we love you. We do trust you. I pray that you would help us to honor you the way we live this week. 
We pray in Christ's name. Amen.